Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. At the conclusion of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Harriet Tubman. let's get started with our story about Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman is the most famous of the participants of the secret American slave liberation movement known as the Underground Railway. She escaped slavery herself in 1849 and returned to her native Maryland again and again to lead other slaves to freedom. Despite illiteracy, she displayed both intelligence and fearlessness armed with both an unshakable faith in God and a loaded revolver. Harriet also became an abolitionist activist, joining with John Brown and advising him before his raid on a federal armory at Harper's Ferry, Virginia. During the Civil War, Harriet continued her dedication to the Union by serving as both a nurse and by gathering intelligence behind Confederate lines. Following the conclusion of the Civil War, she spent the next 46 years providing economic support to her community and advancing the cause of women's suffrage. Harriet Tubman was born Araminta Ross in the Eastern Shore region of Maryland in 1822. Her exact date of birth remains unknown. Both of her parents were slaves, Harriet Ritt Green and Ben Ross. They worked in the household of Anthony Thompson and his second wife, Mary Brodus Thompson. Thompson owned a substantial plantation in eastern Maryland. Rick Green was a personal attendant of Mrs. Thompson, and Ben Ross helped operate the tree harvesting operation within the plantation's extensive woodlands. Araminta, or Minty, was one of nine children. With her mother working in the Thompson home during the day, Minty would take care of her family's infant siblings. From an early age, she would be rented out for various tasks, including babysitting and menial labor. Even within a benign household, American slavery was a psychologically brutal process, especially for a child. When Mary Brodus passed away, her son Edward inherited her slaves, which included Minty and her mother. Several of Harriet Tubman's sisters were then sold to owners in other states and were permanently separated from their family. If, even though she was a child, Minty didn't perform her chores properly, her lessees were certainly entitled to whip her as punishment, a practice that was widespread. One such individual hit her with such force that he broke her ribs and left a permanent knot. 
At the age of 11, Minty was sent to pick up supplies at a local store when she was hit in the head with a two-pound weight meant for another disobedient slave. Despite a gaping head wound that bled profusely, she was sent back into the fields and received no medical attention. The injury left her so debilitated that she was soon returned to her owner, Brodus. This abuse also became the source of seizures that were probably epileptic and hallucinations that Harriet deemed to be spiritual in nature. Because slaves received no education, they relied heavily on Christianity to assuage a harsh and depressing existence, and Harriet Tubman became a deeply religious individual. Initially deemed unsuitable for labor based on the side effects associated with her head injury, Minty gradually recovered and was able to start working again around 1836. She was rented out to another plantation owner by Brodus for approximately five years. This 225-acre plantation was owned by John Stewart and included sophisticated lumber and shipbuilding facilities. But Harriet Tubman eventually worked at Stewart's dry goods store or even chopped and hauled wood. Happy to have escaped the domesticity of a main house, Minty impressed both her owner and other men with her strength and diligence. Anthony Thompson died in 1836, and his will stipulated that most of his slaves, including Ben Ross, should go through the process of manumission, the granting of freedom from a slave owner. Typically, this was done when a slave reached the age of 45, but in any case, Ben Ross was legally freed in 1840, and began to work for pay in the Stewart family timber business. This put him in relative proximity to his daughter, Minty. It is rumored that the same provisions also covered Harriet's mother, Rit, but that the Brodus family merely ignored the stipulation of Mary Brodus Thompson's will. Legally, Harriet and her family had no recourse to contest this omission. It was also around this time that the financially challenged Edward Brodus sold three of Minty's sisters, despite the possibility that they also should have been eventually manumitted. One of them, Lina, was actually separated from her two children. Despite these family tragedies, it was in the rapidly growing Dorchester County area of eastern Maryland that Harriet and her family survived in the early 1840s. The construction of what became known as Stewart's Canal drew both enslaved and free black workers to undertake the dangerous and arduous work of literally digging this waterway. When the canal was done, many of the free blacks remained in the area. One of these men, John Tubman, married Minty Ross in 1844. Probably because her married name would change to Tubman, Minty now also changed her first name to Harriet, her mother's actual first name. Despite John Tubman's status as a free man, he had little rights concerning the legal status of his wife or his offspring. By law in Maryland and many other southern states, his children would be slaves owned by his wife's master, in this case, Edward Brodus. He also needed permission from Brodus to live with Harriet. Harriet also paid Brodus an annual fee to hire herself out, this fee guaranteed by the wealthier Thompson family. Harriet would pay back the Thompsons this guarantee and keep any excess funds. She actually saved enough money to buy a pair of oxen and use these animals to plow fields and haul timber, literally performing work usually involving men. For the next five years, the life of Harriet Tubman was relatively stable, and she lived either with or near her husband. But that changed with the death of Edward Brodus on March 7, 1849. Because Brodus was in debt at the time of his death, the settlement of his estate would require the liquidation of any tangible assets. 
The most valuable and the most liquid were his slaves, including Harriet. Lawsuits related to Brodus's failure to adhere to stipulations regarding his initial inheritance and manumission postponed the sale of Harriet and her family. But all of the Tubmans were aware of Edward Brodus's deceit regarding their freedom and were bitter about his dealings with their siblings. They understood that eventually their family would be broken up and sold. On September 17, 1849, this looming threat prompted Harriet and two of her brothers to flee the area. Within days, both brothers reconsidered. One, Ben, was married and had a young infant. Both were probably not prepared for the uncertainty beyond the harsh but familiar environment of Dorchester County. By the first week of October, all three slaves had returned. Unlike her brothers, Harriet Tubman was determined to seek freedom. Shortly after returning with her siblings, she escaped again. While the specifics of how she managed to flee this time are vague, it is believed that she enlisted the help of a local female Quaker. Quakers were fervent abolitionists, and a small settlement of Quakers near Harriet were already part of the clandestine network aiding runaway slaves in their northward journey to liberation. She would have had the name of initial contacts who would shield her during the day and help her continue her journey at night, frequently providing transportation to the next household along the network. Harriet Tubman eventually made it across the state line into Pennsylvania and Liberty. Later, she would say, There was such a glory over everything. The sun came like gold through the trees and over the fields, and I felt like I was in heaven. Harriet's joy at escaping bondage was chastened by her need to find employment. She quickly found work as a maid and a cook in Philadelphia, and in the summer traveled to southern New Jersey to secure similar positions. Although Harriet herself was free, she remained intent on transporting the rest of her family from Maryland's eastern shore. Developments there quickly forced her to take action. Because news from Maryland traveled rapidly through the close-knit black communities throughout the region, Harriet received word that her niece, Kesia, and her two children were going to be auctioned off in November of 1850 at the Cambridge, Maryland courthouse. Through an elaborate ruse devised by Harriet and Kesia's husband, John Boley, the three slaves were safely transported, first to Baltimore and then, in the company of Harriet, to Philadelphia. Harriet's brother Moses and two other men soon benefited from Harriet's audacity when they also met her in Baltimore and were able to reach Philadelphia. Operating in Baltimore had its risks, but relative anonymity protected Harriet in Maryland's largest city. However, in late 1851, she decided to return to Dorchester County, intent on rescuing her husband and bringing him with her. Unfortunately, she was unaware of the fact that John Tubman had already married another woman and had no interest in being, quote, rescued, unquote. He refused her repeated requests to leave with him, and Harriet, initially angered and hurt by this rejection, ultimately wrote him off and used the opportunity to take more willing slaves back with her to Philadelphia. 
Harriet Tubman's flight and the flight of other slaves was not an unusual occurrence during this time period. Newspaper advertisements announcing the identity of runaway slaves were frequent, and bounty hunters aggressively pursued escaped slaves. The Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was part of the larger Compromise of 1850, which was formulated by Congress to ease national tension over the issue. Southern slave owners accepted certain compromises involving banning slavery outside of the South in return for federal legislation, greatly increasing penalties against anyone aiding runaway slaves. This law, which directly addressed the widespread flight of runaways to the North, merely exacerbated the feelings of Northern abolitionists who felt that they would now be forced to support the arrest of fugitive slaves and fundamentally slavery itself. For Harriet Tubman and her community, the Fugitive Slave Act meant that they were no longer protected in Philadelphia or anywhere else in the northern United States. By 1851, John and Kessia Boley already were in Canada. Harriet continued her activities, remaining in the United States, but establishing a lengthier route to freedom to Canada through upstate New York. Despite the Fugitive Slave Act, Harriet spent 1853 and 1854 in Philadelphia, she took care of her nephew after his parents fled to Canada, and she wished to remain in proximity to other relatives remaining behind in Maryland. She also developed contacts within the abolitionist community in Philadelphia, white supporters who were frequently Quakers. These individuals provided additional financial resources to add to the meager amounts of money that Harriet earned with her own labor. They were impressed by her ability to rescue her own family and her determination to get the rest of her relatives to freedom. By now, Harriet's brothers recognized that Eliza Brodus would sell them at the earliest opportunity, and they made repeated unsuccessful attempts to flee Maryland. At Christmas time, 1854, Harriet again secretly returned to Dorchester County and was able to guide her brothers as well as other slaves, first to Philadelphia and eventually to Canada. Harriet operated during the winter. The nights were longer, and cold weather ensured that most individuals would stay indoors. The three Ross brothers changed their names and quickly assimilated themselves into the growing fugitive slave community in Ontario. For more than a decade, Harriet Tubman would return to Maryland and successfully extricate fleeing slaves. In all, it is believed that she made approximately a dozen trips back to Dorchester County to rescue over 70 individuals. She also provided guidance or advice for 60 other fugitives to successfully navigate the Underground Railroad. Within the fugitive and abolitionist community, her prowess earned her the nickname Moses. Despite the difficult challenges of re-entering Maryland and conducting slaves to freedom, Harriet Tubman never lost one of her charges and was never caught by the numerous slave catchers who routinely prowled the region. More importantly, her identity also remained a secret the indignant slave owners of Maryland's eastern shore having no idea that a slight, partially disabled, middle-aged black female was the source of numerous successful slave escapes. Although technically a free man, Harriet's father, Ben Ross, faced increased hostility as he was suspected to be among the underground group that was aiding the escape of the runaways. Ross had paid the Brodus family a nominal sum of money to secure the freedom of his wife, but both of the Rosses were in their 70s, and the prospect of leaving Maryland was not something they preferred. Nevertheless, Ben heard rumors that he might be arrested, and they were ultimately left with no choice but to leave Dorchester County. Again, Harriet made her way to their home as quickly as possible. 
helped them load their minimal property into a makeshift cart and started the process that successfully got them to Philadelphia and ultimately Canada. The issue of slavery was gradually polarizing the United States into greater confrontation and political hostility that generated radical responses. Through her involvement in the abolitionist movement, Harriet Tubman met many prominent political figures, including Frederick Douglass and John Brown. In fact, Brown was already in the initial stages of formulating a plan to incite a slave rebellion that would hopefully lead to the violent destruction of slavery. Brown, understanding that Harriet Tubman had invaluable knowledge about the states of Pennsylvania and Maryland, conferred with her and even journeyed to Ontario to try and recruit former slaves into his movement. Both Brown and Tubman were mutually impressed with Brown referring to her as General Tubman and Harriet describing Brown as the most of a man I ever met with. Unfortunately, an alienated former devotee went to Congress and for the moment, Brown had to postpone his ambitious plans for rebellion. In addition to political activity, much of Harriet's time was spent caring for her family and ensuring that her parents were comfortable in their new surroundings. Canadian winters were too harsh for the elderly couple, and it became apparent that they would be more comfortable in the United States. It is a testament to Tubman's profile in the abolitionist community that Senator William Seward, a nationally respected politician, came forward to provide a solution. Seward inherited a farm in Auburn, New York, from a relative, and in early 1859 proposed to sell it to Harriet Tubman at a very reasonable price. Seward was a committed abolitionist and progressive who was intent on providing housing to immigrants and African Americans. His offer of the seven-acre farm to Harriet Tubman, a black woman without a guaranteed income, was quite generous and iconoclastic. It was also legally tenuous in that Harriet was officially a runaway slave with no rights of citizenship. Seward himself, under the Fugitive Slave Act, was technically committing a crime by aiding Tubman in such a fashion. But Seward and his wife were ardent abolitionists determined to aggressively fight the political supporters of slavery and probably would have welcomed such scrutiny. Eventually, Ben and Ritt Ross and Harriet's brother John would make the move to upstate New York. With a newly defined additional need for money, Harriet began spending time in the abolitionist hotbed of Boston. She lectured groups on her exploits and tribulations along the Underground Railroad and included comic relief concerning her failure to extricate her husband and his ultimate rejection. That she was a woman with both stories of courage and self-deprecation especially appealed to a female audience, all too familiar with the stiff narratives of male former slaves who couldn't make the same emotional connection. She also was a living challenge to white male dominance, a literally powerful symbol that would resonate with women on the cusp of demanding equality and suffrage. At five foot two and slight stature, missing teeth and decidedly dark complexioned, Harriet Tubman must have presented a startling and charismatic lecturer, especially in 19th century Boston society. She was well on her way to establishing the renown that would accompany her for the rest of her life. The summer of 1859 also brought a resumption of John Brown's plan for rebellion. He was already gathering assets in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, in anticipation of his planned attack on the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry, Virginia. His plan was to seize the arsenal and armory, incite local slaves to join his rebellion, and spread a slave revolt as effectively as possible. Brown was fanatically opposed to slavery with an opposition rooted in a deep religious fervor. 
he considered himself a divine instrument intent on imposing punishment on those conducting the sinful practice of slavery. Based on his interaction with Harriet Tubman, Brown fully expected her to join his effort. He repeatedly attempted to contact her to no avail, but he did meet with Frederick Douglass in Chambersburg. When Douglass realized that Brown was intent on attacking a federal arsenal, he told him that he was going into a perfect steel trap. Once in, he would not get out alive. Douglas also came away from the meeting intent on discouraging any fugitive slaves from joining Brown's mission. Perhaps this foreboding was communicated to Harriet Tubman. Although some historical accounts ascribe her absence from Brown's mission as the result of ill health, she did not respond to his requests and was not present when Brown actually carried out his ill-fated raid on October 16, 1859. Although Brown originally hoped to attack with a force of 5,000 men, his raid consisted of only 22 total insurgents. Initially successful, Brown managed to seize the armory, but none of the expected slaves materialized to help the effort. Brown and his men killed some local militia members in a few skirmishes and then barricaded themselves with hostages in a fortified structure on the arsenal grounds. A detachment of 86 Marines, ultimately commanded by Robert E. Lee and Jeb Stewart, quickly arrived and stormed Brown's position. Ten of the raiders were killed, and although Brown was wounded, he and six other men were captured. All seven would ultimately hang for treason and murder, Brown with great fanfare on December 2, 1859. Hearing of the abortive raid, Frederick Douglass fled first to Canada and then to England, returning only when the federal government became less concerned with Brown's possible accomplices and more concerned with the deterioration of the Union. Brown, a volatile radical who believed violence the only solution to the slavery question, became a much more powerful symbol in death than he ever did in life. To abolitionists, he was a martyr and a hero who stood up to the wealthy and powerful forces of slavery. Upon hearing of his death, Harriet Tubman would say, he'd done more in dying than a hundred men did in living. Tubman also knew that she could potentially be implicated by letters mentioning her possible participation so she left briefly for Canada. Harriet remained one of the major resources of support for her family as the country lurched slowly towards civil war. Her household in Auburn frequently included relatives from Canada and included her parents who could be personally difficult to deal with. When actual fighting broke out with the shelling of Fort Sumter in April of 1861, Harriet found herself determined to help the Union cause, which she felt would ultimately result in emancipation. She initially made her way to South Carolina and assisted in the Union camps that also became a refuge for runaway slaves who sought freedom within Union lines. She also aided in persuading newly freed slaves to enlist in the Union Army. When the Emancipation Proclamation was enacted on January 1, 1863, this effort generated more enthusiasm. Tubman herself became more directly involved in the war effort, slipping behind enemy lines to acquire information about troop movements and unfamiliar territory. In June of 1863, she actually accompanied a raid on South Carolina's Combahee River. 300 black Union soldiers conveyed by steamboat to some of the plantations and storehouses along the river. Having become familiar with the area, Tubman served as a guide for the troops who confiscated crops and farm animals and destroyed homes and other structures. Over 700 slaves also climbed on board and returned with the mission 
with Harriet Tubman's role publicized in various northern publications. It was also in July of 1863 that Franklin Sanborn, a noted Boston abolitionist and an editor of the Boston Commonwealth, published the first detailed biographical information about Harriet Tubman, as well as an appeal for donations. In only three days, enough money was raised to make a much-needed mortgage payment to William Seward. Harriet Tubman also aided in the celebrated 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Regiment in its participation in the attack on Fort Wagner in Charleston Harbor on July 19, 1863. The 54th was one of the first African-American regiments assembled during the Civil War. Commanded by a white abolitionist, Colonel Robert Gould Shaw, the 54th was in the vanguard of the assault on Fort Wagner, a heavily fortified beachhead that was part of the defensive infrastructure protecting the harbor of Charleston, South Carolina. After a lengthy bombardment, the regiment began a frontal assault on the fort. Despite heavy losses, the 54th was able to briefly seize part of the south wall, but heavy hand-to-hand -hand combat and artillery fire pushed the unit back. Other Union regiments also attempted to breach the fort around its perimeter, but were repulsed with terrible losses. An estimated 1,500 Union troops were killed, wounded, or captured. The 54th lost over 250 men. Robert Gould Shaw was killed in the initial storming of the fort and buried in a common grave with his fellow black soldiers. While the grave was eventually washed away by storms and the remains of these soldiers disappeared, the heroic story of Gould Shaw and his men has been immortalized in the film Glory. Tubman was left with dealing with the carnage that resulted from this battle. As a nurse, she would tend to the units of black soldiers who were transported back to Union lines at Beaufort. She later described the conditions that she experienced. I'd go to the hospital, I would, early every morning. I'd get a big chunk of ice and put it in a basin and fill it with water. Then I would take a sponge and begin. First man I'd come to, I'd thrash away the flies, and they'd rise, they would, like bees around a hive. Then I'd begin to bathe their wounds, and by this time I'd bathed off three or four. The fire and heat would have melted the ice and made the water warm, and it would also be as red as clear blood. Then I'd go and get more ice, and by the time I got to the next ones, the flies would be round the first ones, black and thick as ever. In the late fall of 1863, Harriet left South Carolina after 18 months of service. She visited with her family in Auburn and Canada, her relatives scratching out a living as servants or laborers. Although Harriet Tubman would return to the battlefield for the remainder of the Civil War, she would be paid very little for her services, even less than the black soldiers who already were receiving less than their white counterparts. Five days after the armistice at Appomattox, President Lincoln was assassinated and Harriet's benefactor, Secretary of State William Seward, was incapacitated by an assailant involved in the same plot. Although Seward would survive and even attempt to help Tubman in her attempts to receive back pay, she eventually decided to head back to her home in Auburn, New York. In mid-October of 1865, Harriet was en route by railroad to New York City from Philadelphia. When a conductor ordered her into a smoking car, a much more unpleasant location for someone who didn't smoke, Tubman refused, 
claiming that she was currently working for the government. The conductor attempted to physically expel her, but was met with a tenacious response. She grabbed onto some appendage of the railroad car and successfully resisted. The conductor then enlisted the aid of two other men who helped violently expel her, breaking her arm in the process. She was tossed into the smoking car amidst epithets and derision. Encouraged to sue the railroad, Harriet got nowhere, and the incident never made it to a courtroom. The immediate years after the Civil War were bleak ones for the Tubman household. Harriet's parents were completely dependent upon her, unemployable and not particularly convivial. Instead of gratitude, they typically complained about their lack of food and comfort. The small Auburn house was filled to capacity with other family members. Some even considered returning to Maryland, but conditions there were just as difficult. Despite official emancipation, the legal process of indenture ensured that former slaves would still be legally bound to their former masters. Freedmen were routinely the victims of assault and violence. Harriet's ex-husband, John, was shot to death in a dispute with a white neighbor. This individual was tried for murder. His Maryland jury acquitted him in 10 minutes. In 1868, an author of children's literature, Sarah Hopkins Bradford, became interested in writing a biography of Harriet Tubman. She solicited associates for relevant information and hastily compiled and wrote the first detailed account of Harriet Tubman's life. The 132-page volume entitled Scenes in the Life of Harriet Tubman was half biography and half newspaper articles, Sanborn's Commonwealth biography, and testimonials about Harriet's military service. While it is not a thorough historical document and undoubtedly contains inaccuracies, the work provided at least some insight into the mindset and life story of a figure with very little historical profile. Aware of her subject's economic difficulties, Bradford declined any royalties, and members of the business community ensured that the book was an economic success. By 1873, Harriet was able to pay off the debt on her home. While her biography brought her some popular attention, it did nothing to help Harriet's claim for back pay from the U.S. government. A congressional attempt to remedy this discrepancy went nowhere, and Harriet's request for additional pay was denied. Out of economic necessity, she frequently took in boarders to her home, and in 1869, she married one of these individuals, Nelson Davis, a man 20 years younger than Tubman. Descriptions of this relationship vary, but Davis helped operate a brick-making operation on their home's property. In 1871, Harriet's father, Ben, died. Her mother would live for another nine years. Harriet and Nelson adopted a daughter named Gertie in 1874. As the years passed and many of the abolitionist advocates began to die off, Tubman's fame and acclaim receded. Although in 1886, Sarah Hopkins Bradford would publish another biography entitled Harriet, the Moses of her people. She would spend the next few decades in relative obscurity. Her husband, tubercular from an early age, passed away in 1888. Harriet Tubman's last great societal cause was women's suffrage, which she spoke publicly about throughout the 1890s. She did finally receive some acknowledgement from the U.S. government in 1899 with an increase in her widow's pension to $20 a month. But this increase made no mention of her wartime service and was the result of the service of her late husband, Nelson. She worked locally with a local church in Auburn, New York, to try and build a home for indigent elderly African Americans. Harriet donated a parcel of land that adjoined her house for this purpose, but remained so poor that she was admitted to the home herself in 1911. She died there on March 10, 1913, approximately 91 years old.
Despite the modicum of respect and acknowledgement that Harriet Tubman received during her lifetime, her life was extremely difficult and exhausting. In death, she's an immortal American legend whose fame and renown may exceed her actual exploits. But it would be hard to begrudge such a legacy to someone who struggled so selflessly and fearlessly on behalf of the most powerless members of her universe. Her faith and service is summed up in the inscription on her tombstone, which reads, Servant of God, well done. Thank you for listening to this podcast about Harriet Tubman. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Bound for the Promised Land by Kate Clifford Larson and Harriet Tubman, The Road to Freedom by Catherine Clinton. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Thank you.